This podcast, The Two Mats, is sponsored as ever by the New European Newspaper. And we've got a very special subscription offer for you, a new one, where you can get a free bollocks to Brexit passport cover. That's right, you heard that right, folks. It's a burgundy, like vegan leather, beautifully designed passport cover. Pleather. To, to have pleather, that's what, that's what they call it, isn't it? Pleather. To hide your um, new British blue. The shame of the, the blue shame, The shame passport. of the blue passport. And you can get your free bollocks to Brexit passport cover free with a subscription to the New European from just £1 a week. So to take this fantastic offer, and trust me, if you like this podcast, you will absolutely love the New European, go to theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash two mats. That's the number two, M-A-T-T-S, and there's a link in the show notes. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. You're listening to the New Ethiopian Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the New European Podcast. My name's Richard Porritt, and I'm joined by Matt Withers. Hello there. And Cash Boyle. Hello. Show me the money, Cash Boyle. Ah, I think we've got you a little catchphrase, Cash. Show me the, show me the money. <laughs> show me the money. I mean, if you want to show me the money, please, I would welcome <laughs> the money. I Money is welcome. That goes to both you, both of you and the listeners also. Ah, when we hired <laughs> you for the New European podcast, did no one mention the, uh, the, the, the wage? Uh, no, it was, a, it was a silent implied term of the contract, <laughs> I believe. Excellent. Well, thank you both for joining me. Um, we will get to the news. Then we're going to speak to Richard Luck, who's written a superb piece in this week's printed product about his, uh, I think he's picked 20 of his favourite political films. Now, there's plenty on there I haven't seen. Um, so I'm, I'm pretty sure, dear listener, that you will learn something. But there are also some, some favourites on there as well. So he will be on very shortly. Um, and then... We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna sort of take the reins off cash a little bit and let her rant. Now we need a name for this section. I like the cash drop. I don't know if that works, but basically, cash. I believe you have picked a, a particular pillock of the week, which you are gonna drop from a great height. Is that right? I have, but for my first trick, proverbially speaking, I've gone. You, you'll see what I mean. But basically, I've I've gone with a pillock, but I've gone with like. A multitude of pillocks. You'll see ah. what I mean. It'll become clear in due course. What is the collective noun for a pillock? I'm not sure. Well, we'll find I, out. I, I guess I have no. I have no idea, but we'll find out. A hillock. A hillock, a hillock. of pillocks. <laughs> a hillock of pillocks. Do collective nouns have to rhyme? That would be so much more fun if they did. They don't, because of course, my favourite one is a flamingo. They're, they're a flamboyance of flamingos, aren't they? 
Oh, I didn't know that. That's good. Yeah. And as you both know, I am very flamboyant. Here I am now in my flamboyant attire. Not that we're in the same room, guys. We're still in our podcast bunkers, very sadly, due to this dreadful pandemic. But let's get to the news. I was particularly interested in Jeremy Corbyn's week. What do you guys think, Matt? Well, obviously, we need to start by pointing out that he is a man of unique virtue, unparalleled in human history. <laughs> Um, just for my Twitter mentions, just want to get that out there. Um, look, Jeremy Corbyn uh, has been given a slap on the wrist by a subcommittee of Labour's NEC for saying that um, anti-Semitism within the Labour Party under his leadership was basically um, exaggerated by political opponents, internal and external. Um, wasn't good enough for Keir Starmer, who has uh, refused to let him back into the parliamentary Labour Party. So basically... Um, it's a mess of Labour's own making. Um, they rushed this through in 19 days under the party's present unsatisfactory processes, rather than waiting until they've got a new one in place, which the EHRC, the Equality and Human Rights Commission report, says that they must set up. Uh, the current system is deeply political. So commentators were looking at the makeup of this uh, five-person panel adjudicating on uh, Corbyn. Uh, a bit like it was at the US Supreme Court, you know, it had two firm Corbynites, two uh, modernizers, I suppose, seen as loyal to Starmer and one soft left swing voter. Um, my personal view, and I speak as someone who is neither a uh, Labour member nor supporter, is that reacting to an EHRC report, which states very specifically that allegations of anti-Semitism were neither exaggerated nor overstated for political reasons by saying exactly that um, seems a particularly egregious example of bringing the party uh, into disrepute. But what I think is particularly interesting is that Starmer seems to have realised fairly early doors that he can't ride two horses and he's um, prioritised ridding Labour of the stain of anti-Semitism above retaining the support of the Momentum Brigade who are always going to drift off anyway. I don't know mm. if, if you agree with that. Well, I th I, well, firstly, I think if Keir Starmer was able to ride two horses, that would be a vote winner. What is that thing? <laughs> What is that thing they do? Isn't it just before Christmas where the Queen goes along and all those people in army costumes sort of dick around with horses? He could do it then, couldn't he? What's it called? The Royal Pageant or something? I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know if Keir Starmer needs it. I don't know. <laughs> he, could, he could have a foot on each horse and he could, he could go between towns on the stump on the back of two horses. Listen, Keir, I'm reaching out to you again with these wonderful ideas. Please... <laughs> Give me a call, because honestly, they're all yours if you want them. Um, Richard, I, Richard's idea, Kia, is <laughs> dick around with horses. My, my view on this, and I get so much heat about, you know, I get people saying, I'll never listen to this podcast again because you hate Jeremy Corbyn. Well, um, <clears throat> the truth is, I don't hate Jeremy Corbyn, but I do think he was a very poor leader. And I think he is, you know, and I'm not, I, I, this is... Anti-Semitism aside, I think he's a fairly—he was a very poor leader, and I think he and a lot of his followers were pretty misguided. However, um, I think it was the final straw. You know, it was that but, wasn't it? In in that statement, but um, these were overplayed for political reasons by our, you know, internal and external enemies, etc. And then the sort of, you know, the clarification uh, that we got before he was uh, readmitted into into the party was was still didn't have an apology, was nowhere close. Um, and I think, frankly, Keir Starmer had very little choice. And I, um, 
I was pleased with, with, with Starmer's response. I think he did the right thing. So Jeremy's back, but no whip. Um, and it seemed a bit like Panto to me. You know, he's back. Oh, no, he isn't. He's behind you. Oh, no, he isn't. And we're not going to have a Panto season that. this year. So, you know, that seemed to work quite well. Cash, what, what were your thoughts on this whole saga? I mean, I was just sort of listening to you both, like pretty enraptured because you sort of both explained pretty well how I feel as well. I think to agree with to agree with Matt, I think the, the, the system that Labour has at the moment in terms of disciplinary procedures is inherently flawed it's not independent and therefore it lends itself to like allegations of political influence no matter what the outcome so that's the first thing and i agree with that the second mm. thing would be that it was rushed through unnecessary unnecessarily and so it has created and it, 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 let, we, let's have it right it was only rushed through because it was jeremy corbyn and a person of his stature you know within within the labor party or the former leader uh, let's say so that's so those are two problems i think the I think the problem of the decision being inherently political, pardon me, is that it, for me, the focus has been too much on that and not enough on the actual root problem of anti-Semitism. I think amidst all this, you know, like you say, Richard, like panto and theatre and, you know, mudslinging, there's a really serious problem of anti-Semitism that whether Jeremy Corbyn and his, you know, most devout followers want to admit it or not, he has been a part of. He will deny the extent of it. I can't say personally what I believe in respect of that, but he has to accept, I feel, that he has been a part of that problem's exacerbation within the Labour Party. But the more that we talk about the, the panto and the theatre, much as they're relevant, the less we talk about the actual insidiousness of anti-Semitism that is actually the cornerstone of the issue. I feel that the conversation has become too much around Jeremy Corbyn and not enough around actually trying to rid the party of this problem. Now, what I'd say in terms of, you know, the actual reinstating into the Labour Party, but not restoring the whip, I, I, I believe it's the right decision. It sort of creates this weird halfway house system where, you know, he's obviously back in the Labour Party, but he can't sit as a Labour MP. And that's problematic, particularly for his supporters. And I think it's important to highlight at this at this stage that whether you, you like him or not or disagree with his ideology and uh, and everything or not, Jeremy Corbyn has a lot of a lot of fans and a lot of supporters and a lot of people who he brought to the Labour Party and they're very unhappy. So I think what the whole messy affair has kind of revealed is that the system is flawed, the decision is inherently divisive, it is political but that doesn't stop it from being the right decision being reached by Keir Starmer. And I think when we focus on the priority of ridding the party of anti-Semitism, that's what needs to be the center point, not all this ancillary narrative over you know, the, the right and left of the Labour Party who hate each other. And I feel like it's become very distracting. And ultimately, as Matt said, as Richard alluded to as well, there wasn't enough humility in the whole climb down, if you could even call it that for me. So. That was pretty messy what I've just said, but in summary, what I'm saying is that I think it's all a bit of a mess. The main issue of anti-Semitism has is becoming increasingly less the focus, and that's wrong. And really, I think the right decision has been reached overall. I think ho hopefully, without I, 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 having made this firm decision um, on, on Starmer's part, and and it, and there is a risk attached to it, as you as you mentioned there. I think hopefully. By removing Jeremy Corbyn from that, Labour can move forward and 
tackle what has been an issue within the party um, and make sure it is no longer an issue. Um, just one last point before we move on. You say there, you know, Jeremy Corbyn's got a lot of supporters, a lot of people that he brought to the Labour Party. That's absolutely correct, but not enough, not enough in two elections to win them an election. Yeah, in did. fact, yeah. and last time they got a kick in. And I, and think, I agree with that. I do agree with that. I think I think you're you're absolutely spot on. I I was merely making the point to sort of say that there's always going to be a huge din when there's yeah. anything remotely controversial surrounding Jeremy Corbyn. That that's what I meant. But you're right. Yeah, it's a there is a, there is a you know there's a cult of personality around him. Absolutely. But I think that I think that on on balance, Keir Starmer will be thinking, well, he brought those people. I can probably afford to lose them because when Labour have won in the past, it hasn't been by going left. It's been by going centre. Right. And that is clearly what, uh, what 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 Keir Starmer is, is is planning to do. Just to add on that, Rich, I think it's um, worth making the point that in the parliamentary party, um, there are no figures of substance behind uh, Corbyn. He's very lucky that the, the only people who are emerging as kind of leaders amongst the, um, the the post Corbynites, if you call them that, are Ian Lavery, mm. um, who is just a, a, a foghorn half-wit, and Richard Bergen, who is almost certainly the only MP whose mum sews his name into his clothes. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if there's more, to be honest. Nanny does it for Jacob Rees-Mogg, <laughs> I presume. Um, anyway, let, let, let's move on, because there's other stuff going on. We're, we are still, of course, and I do warn people this, come to us for your news. You know, in days gone by, in happier times, we would urge you only to take your news from the New European podcast. Nowhere else. I'm sure lots of people did that. But we opened up the doors a little bit at the start of the year and said, you know, maybe tune into the Today programme because there's lots going on. We might be locked down. You might be, you know, you might not want to wait until Friday morning. Um, that continues because it's looking more and more like Christmas is on, is on, is in a dodgy place, isn't it? And, uh, you know, the, the lockdown changing or, or, or becoming less restrictive on December the 2nd, I mean, we've had ministers on TV sort of not going as far as to say that lockdown will certainly come. We might get a tier four. I don't think anyone here in the east of England, of course, where I am, we 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 went into full lockdown from tier one. There's no way we're going back into tier one because the cases have gone up. Um, so Christmas is going to look a little bit different. Should we just cancel Christmas? Because really, all it is is a it, it, it's just a it, it's just a Sunday roast with an inflated ego, isn't it? Breach. <laughs> I'm, I, I mean, I, I like, I don't want to sound like a Scrooge because I do, I like Christmas, but I like Christmas for all the reasons that a lot of people don't really think about in the sense that I like, because obviously I'm Irish. So I like the possibility of going home, seeing family, speaking at my normal speed. Um, you know, just, <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting for that to, to land. Um, you know, th- things like that, because when I think Christmas can sometimes assume a different kind of meaning or connotation when you live away from your family. So for me, if that's what we're looking at Christmas through the lens of, then I really like Christmas, but all the other stuff is just nonsense, really. I'm you not. See, I'm, I'm the complete opposite, Cash. You see, Christmas, the, the, the pain in the arse of Christmas is I have to see my family. The, <laughs> so, the, 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 this lockdown element is superb. I haven't had to go back to Yorkshire now for months. <laughs> It's it's a joy. Oh, if anyone's listening, this is Richard. You don't. Slight, I'm only slightly kidding here. You, you but, don't I mean, have to see your family. Last Christmas, um, I mean, all my family are in in the northwest. Last Christmas, I I stayed in London, and um, me and my girlfriend walked down um, Broadway Market, but Market in uh, Hackney, uh, where we live, because we are uh, very hip. 
Um, you are a like quintessential hipster. All the all the pubs were open. We just did a crawl of the wow. um, of, of the pub through through Broadway Market. Um, put in a put in a phone call. You know, uh, put in a call. Oh yeah, to the, <laughs> to, to to the family. But yeah, it was absolutely great. It was buzzing because there's a you know there's an awful lot of people from all over the world who live around here who have just chosen to spend it with friends. Obviously, uh, well, not obviously because we don't want the situation. It's going to be it's going to be very different this year. Yeah. Who knows what yeah. the situation is going to be with um with with pubs uh, who knows what the situation is going to be with um people like you know myself and cashew's family uh, in different parts of, of of the of the uk um if there's a tier system what what's the situation going to be about traveling between them they say there's going to be some kind of um relaxation where people can mix in family uh, bubbles of i think it's a two or three households but people will be encouraged potentially not to stay overnight which makes it very difficult if you're you're traveling i mean they're gonna have to thrash mm -hmm. this out between the various um devolved administrations over the next couple of weeks but um anything like the furlough system it'll be like announced on like the 2nd of december night as the lockdown is ending in two minutes that like whatever the next set of measures are it's going to be like yeah you can do this you can do that and like matt says there's a lot of logistical things that kind of go into it and i guess i think sometimes with christmas there's like a little bit of um maybe arrogance is the wrong word, but there's just sort of like sense that Christmas has to be fantastic. But I think it's important to bear in mind that for some people, Christmas is really not fantastic. Christmas is a reminder of, you know, maybe if you have loss in your life, Christmas is a reminder of what you feel you don't have, or Christmas is a reminder of, I, I don't know, things that are not necessarily nice to recall because Christmas kind of focuses everyone and makes people inherently nostalgic and, and everything like that. But actually for some people, it's a really hard and difficult time that, I think shouldn't be overly romanticized but it I is. agree well Christmas is a tough time and I'll tell you why because it costs me a fortune and I hate spending money cash I hate 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 spending money and I have got three children with Christmas lists like an like the order book for Dixon's or Curry's or whatever it might be and you know it's it's blinking expensive my perfect Christmas day would be this and I absolutely swear this is true and I don't dislike Christmas but Stay at home, watch TV, drink beer. That would that would do me fine, and I wouldn't be breaking any lockdown rules. Because it, I was thinking, I'm actually currently writing a column along these lines. This isn't the first time, of course, because uh, Oliver Cromwell kind of banned Christmas, didn't he? He he said hmm. it should be for quiet contemplation, and he actually put soldiers on the streets to stop people preparing for Christmas meals. So you know, it wouldn't be the first time we've gone down this route. I feel like that t in today's version, that would be the enforcement officers that are making sure shops are complying with like, <laughs> like you know, with COVID measures, you know, when they go in and they make sure that your mask is over your nose precisely. I feel like this is the modern day version of that. That's it. Someone in a high vis knocking on your door. Excuse me. Excuse me. Are you enjoying a turkey here? How many? <laughs> does this person live here? I mean, you know. Marching around little checking nobody's buying sprouts. <laughs> yeah, I am. I am. Um, I am under the impression however there is there has been some good christmas news isn't it because I, i'm pretty sure there's not going to be a mrs brown's boys christmas oh, special please, this year please 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 so i mean that is christmas gift that is christmas awful. gift enough for all of us the funniest thing that ever happened on mrs brown's boys right i was sat in the kitchen and it was on in the background i was doing something else i hadn't tuned in and they stopped they they said and it, it froze and then they cut to just a voiceover and Mrs. Brown had a frying pan or something lifted up in the air. And it said, um, we cut now to a message from President Zuma. And I was like, what? 
what is going on? This is taking a bit of a turn. <laughs> and it was the death of Nelson Mandela that was being announced. Not that that is funny. But what I'm saying is that was probably the most entertaining bit of Mrs. Brown's Boys. And thank goodness there will be no Christmas special this year. Merry Christmas, one and all. I think... I feel like we can sort of solve two problems here, two, kill two birds with one stone, if you take the good news of the lack of Christmas special for Mrs. Brown's Boys and you present that to your three children as a gift. <laughs> I can't see that going down well um, when, you know, very expensive te technological goods have been, <laughs> been ordered from Father Christmas this year. Um, no, instead, you get nothing um, uh, apart from the knowledge that there will be no Mrs. Brown's boys. Hey, Matt, let me, t I've got, I, I need to talk to you about something, okay? I've, I've been, um, me and my pals have been interested in sort of investing, you know, stocks and shares, all right? And, uh, and I'm no Gordon Gecko, um, but, but what I am told is that investing is one of the best ways to grow wealth over the long term. However, high commissions, clunky products from traditional stockbrokers can make it complicated for people to start investing. It's a bit sort of daunting. Meanwhile, trillion-dollar companies get built, but very few people benefit from that wealth creation. Incomes, free trade. Free trade is on a mission to change that by breaking down these barriers opening up stock investing for everyone, including even the likes of me. So while other brokers charge up to 12 quid for every trade, you believe that's 12 quid for every trade, free trade doesn't charge any commission fees. So you can invest and you can keep more of your profits. The award-winning investment app is used by more than 250,000 people. It is FCA authorized and FSCS protected, and it lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs, and investment trusts, all without commissions. Free Trade has been the winner of the British Bank Awards two years in a row, 2019 and indeed 2020, for best online trading platform. The intuitive design makes investing simple for any experience level, which is good news for me, from beginners to experts. You can start investing from just £2. That is right, £2. Free trade doesn't offer any speculative products such as CFDs, that's spread betting, or products with uh, leverage. They don't do any day trading. It's all about long-term investing with a transparent pricing model and no hidden fees. So there's a general investment account. There's a stocks and shares ISA. You can sign up for uh, Free Trade Plus, so that does more advanced types, bigger stocks, etc., etc. And there is a special offer for you. New European listener. So go to freetrade.io forward slash Brexit. And if you register and fund your account, you'll get a randomly allocated free share worth between £3 and £200. That could be big companies like Greg's, everyone likes a sausage roll, Rightmove, even Apple. So freetrade.io forward slash Brexit. Now, what I must say is that when you invest, your capital is at risk. The value of investments can go up as well as down, and you may receive back less than your original investment. The app is very cool, Matt. You've got to try it out. It's really cool. Go on and log, log on, get the app, get your free share. It's a lot of fun. I'll check it out. I believe that lurking in the background is Richard Luck. Richard, are you there? Yeah, hi, Richard. How are you? I'm very well. Um, and Thanks Richard, for having me. Well, it's an absolute pleasure, and um, it, this won't be the last time because I have. Oh. Um, I think we all have for some time now enjoyed your work uh, sure. with the new european you've been you've been sort of writing for us now for well pretty much since the beginning really is that right pretty much yeah i think golly it's a it's a long while it's uh 
yeah thanks for thanks for keeping me on <laughs> oh, well, we, we like your stuff and the reason we really wanted to get you on this week was because um you've written a, a piece um about political movies now i have to say i have to i'll hold my hands up and i think this is true of all three of us actually there there are ones on there we haven't seen i've seen about five or six probably sure. maybe a couple more um so so some of us are learning things which is great so <laughs> what i would say is and we, we won't I'm not going to ask you to list them all or whatever because we want people to go and check it out for themselves and learn about some of these movies they might not have sure. seen. Um, but uh, so you've you've ordered them from twenty to one. Is that the number one being the best, or did you pick your sort of favourite twenty? Well, I, I picked my favourite twenty, but I think the top five is pretty much that's uh, you know set in stone. They're sli- those entries are slightly longer as well, and yeah, I think Bob Roberts, Tim Robbins. Uh, satire from uh, 1994 that still I remember seeing I vividly remember going to see that film I was at uh, university in Birmingham went with my uh, my good friend Andy Willis and um, I thought it was a great film then I think it's uh, a great film now the only thing I would say is what was a very funny satire of the combination of uh, you know politics and show business I mean now is one of the most frightening films you can uh, possibly yeah. imagine it's um, it's all far too real and uh, one rather wishes it was uh, what it was the first time there. But well, no, I have to wonderful. say that's that is one that I need to check out because I haven't seen that. And when I first saw your list, I thought it was I thought it was a film about the former Daily Mirror political editor Bob Roberts, <laughs> yes. but it's <laughs> but, but it's not. After reading your piece, it's not. But yeah. it does sound fascinating. Why don't you just just briefly talk us through the the sort of plot on that one? Uh, what it is is Bob Roberts, uh, Tim Robbins, who wrote, directed, he composed the the music. It's a uh, it's a real man of the match effort from him. Well, uh, Roberts is a wealthy businessman and folk singer who um, is uh, running for political office. He is the, um, he, he's incredibly Trumpian. He, um, all of his, uh, his music is all about sort of that, um, you know, retake America is one of his songs. He's, you know, it's all the music about the country's in a terrible state and I can make it better. Um, and he runs for office. The guy he runs against is a very old school Democrat, played by Gore Vidal, which is a wonderful piece of casting. And um, it's a, along the way, it manages to do two things. One, it's a very good parody of the Bob Dylan documentary "Don't uh, Don't Look Back." And right from the from the off, it begins with a motorcycle accident, which, if you've seen the Dylan film, that sort of uh, tallies very nicely with that but what happens is yes it goes through the motion it ticks off political assassination um the sort of the idea of uh, politicians as celebrity i'm maybe not doing the best job in the world of selling it there's a couple of really nice things though um there's a very young jack black in there somewhere as a sort of devoted young follower who um you can sort of see sort of certain parallels with some of the people who are the maga hat crowd of today and the other thing is um it was made for very little money most of the money was secured because alan rickman has a brilliant supporting role in it as a cia hawk but to um sort of make it go a bit further uh robin's called in favors from all of his um from his acting company so john cusack's in there uh susan sarandon who is his partner at the time fred ward it's uh it's a brilliant film and the sort of the hero of the piece is played by Giancarlo Esposito, who um, Gus, who's Fring, Gus Fring from uh, Breaking Bad. So there's there's just loads and loads of really good things about that film. And, what uh, what makes a, a good 
political movie, do you think? I think it can be different things. I mean, it's trying to actually make politics interesting, I think used to be a a huge problem. Um, And so you'd get films that were political in rather sort of polite and understated way. For example, one of the films on there, which may surprise people is Planet of the Apes. But Planet of the Apes is a political film. Um, This uh, Rod Serling, who came up with the idea said, you know, this is really a film about um, civil rights in the States. And you couldn't really make that film at the time. But I think it's, I think it's a, certainly a whiff of authenticity helps. I think um, treating the audience like adults really helps. You know, audiences will sort of go along with sort of quite sophisticated ideas and um, it doesn't. I always think that if you've ever seen the comic strip um, film about the minor strike in which the minor strike is turned into a huge American epic, if you can avoid doing something like that, you're by and large going to be making a much better film. So, the, I mean, there's no hard and fast rules. I Certain people do make them better than others. I, I know it's not everyone's flavour of the month, but Oliver Stone, I think, because I mean, I think Nixon, which is on there, is a, an incredible film. And uh, it really, de- you know, it's incredibly fair as well. You know, Richard Nixon was a very, very damaged man who then went on to create a lot of damage. But it's... Um, well, that's, I mean, that was one of the films I was going to mention next because yeah. obviously t- the, the the two films that sort of stand out on the list for me are are Nixon um, and All the President's Men, of yeah. course, which which both are both historical pieces, both focus yeah. on actual events. Um, but and and if you were if you were trying to sell Nixon to someone who hadn't seen it, that potentially is quite a hard sell because it would be yeah. it would be easy to just go in sort of boots high, wouldn't it? It would. It's. I think it's the fact what you, uh, the film is um, at, at its core. It is Nixon's last night in the White House. Um, at which stage he was drinking very heavily. He was um, taking pills. He um, was really falling apart during his last. Um, he was talking to the paintings. Those things happened in the film. They actually did happen. They were documented in uh, various uh, you know, dispatches from that Nixon White House. But what we then see is we go back through his life. We see he had a horrific childhood. He. Um, lost two brothers to tuberculosis. And his mother, um, who was a very strict Quaker, I mean, not, uh, not, a lot of, uh, not a lot of hugs in that family, she took in other um, TB sufferers to sort of uh, make money for the household. And so these men who were almost like brothers to Nixon, you know, a couple of them also, also passed away. So you have this, he goes to university, he wants to be an American, he wants to play football. He's a terrible footballer, but he's very courageous. It's then traces all the way through to him uh, being uh, vice president under uh, Eisenhower, losing out to Kennedy, mm. the, you know, him looking awfully grey and sweaty in that famous debate while Kennedy looking like a, a tanned god. Um, you look at that, look at how he then lost the, um, uh, the race, uh, governor's race in California and how he was really a spent force. It being Oliver Stone, they, there isn't, uh, more than a whiff of conspiracy, not just about Watergate, but about actually how he was um, encouraged to run uh, again in '68. I won't that, but you know it's not so um, conspiratorial that it it gets into sort of JFK territory. Um, but it's uh, and then yeah, he gets into power. He has this very strange period in power because on the one hand you have the horrors of Vietnam and Cambodia. On the flip side, you have detente, um, where you know you're reaching out to Russia and China. That's mm. all in there. 
Henry Kissinger is played by Paul Sorvino, who is utterly revolting. James Woods, who is, you may be familiar with James, well, you'll be familiar with the actor, but James Woods actually is a, is very politically right wing, but he plays H.R. Haldeman, who was Nixon's hatchet man. It's, it's a heck of a lot of movie. It almost feels more like um, you can imagine other people might have made it as a series. Yeah, yeah. These days it would probably be a Netflix eight-parter, wouldn't it? I, it would, but it worked so incredibly well. And yeah, it, the line I quote, which is one of my favourite lines in any political film, is when he, um, E. Howard Hunt, who was the one of the guys involved in the Watergate break-in, discussing Nixon with John Dean, and he says, you know, Nixon is the darkness reaching out for the darkness. And I think that can uh, that's a description that can apply to so many political figures. It's, yeah, uh, yeah. I say yeah. the same about Matt Withers. But um, and then that leads us on <laughs> nicely to um, all the president's men, of course, which yeah. focuses squarely on. And and this is a very special film for me because when I was a, when I was a trainee journalist, um, I was I'd had a particularly uh, sort of b- bad bad run of days for whatever reason. I don't yeah. know. I dropped the ball on something. My my short, you know, I was struggling with my shorthand and all that kind of thing. And I went out um, to sort of drown my sorrows. And when I got back yeah. in quite late, I was living living on my own in Newcastle. I got back in and it was just starting and I'd never seen it. Obviously, I knew yeah. the story, but I'd never seen it. And over over 90 minutes, it just absolutely cemented, get your head down and make this yeah. work, Richard, because this is, you know, and of course, it very, very, uh, almost like... Um, I tell all my trainees to watch it, and it is very much a, a rose-tinted view of journalism, and uh, but if, from from the view of someone who wasn't involved in it or whatever, yeah. and it's very, um, you know, it's a little bit saccharine for a journalist to watch it. But it was, it, but it's incredibly understated as well, isn't it? And I think you, you sort of mentioned, and that was the bit that always got me when he actually falls there just in the newsroom watching it on a crappy little TV. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I really like, and, and that beige newsroom um, they're in, I'm familiar with that. You know, I've worked, from, uh, used to work in papers in Australia and what have you. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's a really familiar, it's not these wonderfully glamorous places. It's not palatial. And there's a lot of, it being the 70s, there's a lot of sort of mustard and brown and, you know, a lot of drab going on. And it's also showing journalists doing footwork. Yeah. You know, these aren't um, journalists sort of almost doubling as secret agents. These are guys going door to door, um, often asking sort of banal questions in the hope of getting an exciting answer. And um, yeah. whether, I, I, mean, they I... Got, I mean, they get that. They, they absolutely nail it. You know, the bit <clears throat> I remember the bit where uh, um, where um, Bernstein is asked if he wants another cup of coffee, you know, and you're always yeah. told, I was always told, never refuse, because that means you've got them until you've yeah. finished that drink. And um, it, it's little things like that that I think probably trained journalists pick up on, perhaps, that that maybe goes unexplored for, for the general public. Maybe, But that the door knocking, you know, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think that there's been a couple of good um, representations of newsrooms more recently. Uh, the mm. pro- Thought was pretty good and also yeah. um spotlight i thought yes, both of those yeah. were pretty good spotlights spotlight particularly i thought was i think it's an excellent film i don't um, think that's films ever i know it won the best film uh, best picture oscar i still don't really think it's had its due i think it was yeah it really captured something sorry go on richard and I, I, and but i think you're absolutely right in that newsrooms are very often 
portrayed incorrectly, I think. Um, mm. But but in in all the presidents, men they absolutely nail it. The sort of you know the the almost the buzzing of the sort of um, you know uh, lighting the and strobe lights, yeah, yeah, yeah. and, and um, you know I think it, it, so often it is got wrong in films and in TV series uh, what it's like to work in a newsroom. But I think yeah. I think all the president's men really, really nailed it. And of course, at the time it came out, it was only a few years after this had all happened, so it was very much in people's minds. You know, they absolutely. Would have um, Do you think it stands that... up? Sorry? All these, all these years later, you know, what, 40, oh. 44 years later, do you still think it's a? Do you still think it stands up? Well, I think it does, and it's interesting you mentioned the post, which I liked, but it was interesting, and it got the newsroom right. But to, um, it's the same. Uh, Tim, uh, sorry, Tim, Tom Hanks is um, playing the same um, editor, Ben yeah. Bradley, yeah. as Jason Robards. And Jason Robards is so like Ben Bradley. There's a very good documentary. It's on um, Sky Documentaries at the moment about Bradley and his uh, extraordinary, very colourful life. And um, But Bradley so likes Robards' portrayal of him. He's got the same cranky, uh, crackly voice and... Uh, lived in place he actually started mimicking so there's a <laughs> there's this arm flexing thing that robards does in the film and apparently you know the guys who used to work at uh washington post said yeah yeah you'd see uh, you'd see ben doing that once the film was out it's um no i love I this think- my favorite scene with um with uh uh robards is the bit where he's in he's in his tux yeah. and they and they're telling they're sort of telling the editor desperately trying to get their story in and he and he just he taps his knuckles he goes to walk out and he he sort of wraps his knuckles on the on the table sort of I don't yes. know if you can hear it. and he yeah. says and he just goes run that baby and yeah. <laughs> yes fantastic and of course then the story is incorrect so and that brings them all crashing back down to earth and it's very it's a, an excellent uh, excellent portrayal, um, Cash. I'm, 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 I often do this and take up all the uh, all the time when we've got guests on, especially ones as interesting as Richard. Is there a film on there that sort of stood out for you, one that you particularly liked? I'm going to defend myself at the beginning from um, what Richard was saying about perhaps we haven't seen all the movies. I've counted, and I am actually only older than eight of these movies. <laughs> no. <laughs> that's one defense of stalt no i'm just, i mean that is true but that, that doesn't just uh, prevent me asking a question um I'll, the one the, the film that i wanted to ask about i think um in line with the soon-to-be outgoing president of the us of a is citizen <laughs> kane because obviously yeah as you outline it's citizen kane is donald trump's favorite movie and i'm always interested in i guess a, a, a movie or a film that well, what I would say a, a potential sociopath really, really loves. Um, so <laughs> I guess, I mean, obviously Citizen Kane's like, you know, so, so popular. Um, it's a classic and it's number five on your list. And I was just curious, is, is there a reason that it isn't higher than, than five or was it hard I, for you to kind of... What I'd say, Cash, is it's not higher because it's not ultimately a political film. The, the politics is part one of the subplots of the film. I think if it was... The, the main drive of the film, it, then maybe it would have been higher. It isn't, a, um, a, it's certainly not a comment on quality because Kane is voted the, one of the greatest films um, ever made with great regularity. But it's no, the, uh, in, the, in that particular case, the, um, yeah, Kane wants to run for the governorship of uh, New York. And uh, along the way, yes, he has the press at his disposal. So it's lots of, you know, fake headlines. Um, uh, he um, 
actually at the end, what, what happens is it's um, his career is brought crashing down by a he has an affair, he leaves his first wife, and his political opponent uh, plays on that. And uh, yeah, well, the, the politics side of that story ends with um, uh, the newspaper presses running fraud at polls on, as their major headlines. So mm. um, it's great. I mean, it couldn't be, but I, I wonder how many times Trump's watched it because really he. He's mimicked it, but he's mimicked the the mistakes <laughs> as much as he's mimicked the the triumphs of the uh, real commitment to sort of art imitating life. Absolutely, so much but, that he wants to like replicate it, flaws and all. Yeah, Charles Foster Kane. In, it's then again though, he always says his favourite book. Uh, Donald Trump says is um, All Quiet on the Western Front, and I I really doubt whether he's read that. <laughs> I think it. I think it's probably one of his own books that was ghost written for him. That was very possibly, yes. He's he's coloured them in. They were very <laughs> not. No. He um I no, I he doesn't strike me. I think culture's something that happens to people other than Donald Trump. But he um Kane's a great film to name drop, but I think if you look closely, the playbook it's maybe not the playbook you should be following, but he's... Uh, I also doubt if he's keeping in the lines when he's doing his colouring, I have to say. Oh, he's <laughs> he goes outside the lines, we know he does. Yeah. Uh, just finally, Richard, yeah, I, don't sure. keep, I don't want to keep you too much longer, but I also wanted to mention In the Loop, because I think I think we, we often mention the thick of it in this mm. on, on this podcast, and you know I've been involved in, in politics uh, as a journalist, and I was also a lobbyist for a time. So I've kind of seen this, I kind of seen this close up, you know, I mean, there have been, there have been times when it's felt like I've been in an episode of, uh, of the thick of it. Um, uh, uh, some of our listeners might remember um, us chasing Dominic McBride, uh, Dominic McBride, Damien McBride around Brighton and getting <laughs> fruit thrown at us one time, which could have been absolutely out of, <laughs> out of, uh, out of the film in the loop. Uh, it's, it, 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 you've got it as tenth. I mean, I, th- I thought it was a, a super film. Why, why, why did you like it? I, I think it actually there were lots of reasons for liking. One of them being very, it's very rare that something goes from television to film and works. I mean, I, I mentioned in my. Um, I'm old enough to remember the 70s and what would happen then was that um, sitcoms would be turned into movies invariably really badly I mean I think uh, Porridge is the only one that really sort of you know survived the transfer but this does it brilliantly so much so I mean it's Tucker is such a big character he's really rather than being lost on the big screen it's sort of where he belongs Mm. and to see Malcolm Tucker and Tony Soprano but Tony Soprano going toe to toe I mean that was fantastic I just thought it was absolutely wonderful it's um could it have been higher on the list yeah I mean the thing with lists is part of the joy of them is that is the debate firstly with the person who's compiling them and then with the um everyone who yeah the people who read it afterwards but it's um I think it's fantastic I um and I love the thing of um, Paul Higgins, who plays Jamie, the idea, you think Malcolm's bad, and then you meet <laughs> him. I think that's just such a wonderful, um, it, you know, it's in Frasier, you know, you think Frasier's pretty sort of, um, you know, tightly wrapped, um, you know, uh, and then you meet Niles, and in comparison, Frasier's quite a relaxed, uh, uh, charming guy. It's, um, no, I, I think it's fantastic. And I, I actually I watched this- it again the other night. I, uh, I'm really. Um, I see the. Um, there's a film coming out, the the young Tony Soprano, um, in which he's going to be played by Gandolfini's uh, son, and it was it was really striking to be uh, reminded how much you miss him as an actor. Yeah. And it was great 
great to see him with all those British actors, all those very fa um, familiar faces from British television mixed in with this, you know, big star of uh, American TV. Well, that, therein, for me, lies the, the, the success of the movie. It's the relationship between the two, between, between the, uh, the, the British political aides and the American ones. You know, that yeah. is, I think, where the, the actual foundation of the success of that movie lies. Um, just finally, if, is, there, is there one movie on there that we perhaps don't know as well as the ones we've mentioned that you would really urge people to, 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 to check out? The, the one film that, that I'm... My love of film really came from a BBC Two series, Movie Drone, back in the, mm. uh, in the 80s um, with Alex Cox and later with Mark Cousins. And they, um, the thing I really took from that, they would show great films, but they'd also mention movies and, hey, check this out and track this down. There's a film on there, The Matai Affair, which is a brilliant um, Italian movie. I tried to conclude a few films in the continent. Um, it's a very hard film to get hold of. You can do it. I mean, if people go around and, you know, it's, um, yeah, look, look around the internet, you can find it. It's an extraordinary film about a real Italian political scandal. Um, it's hard to get hold of because it's cut so close to the quick. A lot of people really don't want you to see that picture, but it's, um, that's Francesco Rossi. It's um, the leading uh, Matteo himself is played by uh, Gian Maria Volonti who you'll know, he's the villain from the uh, the Dollars movies, the Spaghetti Westerns, but he's a wonderful actor. Um, and interestingly, he was a very, um, he was a left-wing activist as well. So having him in there, he's really bringing a freight load of intent and passion to this extraordinary story. So that's really worth, um, yeah, if you can hunt that down, you will, I promise you won't be sorry. The other one is, though, is Z, Costa Campus is Z, which is my uh, second on the list. That you will be able to find, and it's, well, as good a thriller as you could possibly want. There you go. You've got some homework to do. This is Richard. <laughs> thank you so much for coming on. It's an absolute pleasure. I, I, I'm a, I don't know much about film, but I do love film, and especially political films, especially if you've got journalists in them. So thank you so much for joining us and talking Thanks, us through this. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. And you can check out the full list, of course, in this week's New European Print Edition, which is on sale now, and it's £3.00. Uh, guys, we do need to tick off a few more news items, I fear, before uh, Cash tells someone off or a group of people off. Um, what about um, Dominic Cummings? He's gone. And yeah. really, really subtly and quietly <laughs> and without, with minimal fuss. I mean, I, it, it, was it even an exit? It was barely noticeable. I, it was just brilliant. I mean, because we, we spoke at length um, about the Lee Kane saga uh, last week and, and him leaving by the time we had cut this and, and sent it away for, for, for you guys to enjoy. Um, Dominic Cummings had also uh, fallen on his sword. And I loved the way that he came out the front door with his box and then went and I think he waited for a taxi, didn't he? It was so Dominic Cummings. It dripped of Dominic Cummings. And inside, while that was happening, they were actually having a farewell party for, for Lee Kane, who was, who was banged out. So he actually went off in a huff and didn't even accept his bottle of Heineken. What a lot of people won't know is there's not just one door into Downing Street. Well, I mean, yeah. <laughs> Lots. There, there are an awful lot of doors, but there's only one that's got camera people outside. Um, and he knew exactly what he was doing. He had the shot he wanted to get on the front pages the next day. And uh, everybody everybody bought it. And uh, 
that image of him forlornly walking out with his his box of lunatic data or whatever was in there um uh, and i guarantee all that was in there was like a paperweight like some i don't know some paperwork for like i don't know the dvla or something inconsequential like that and just like a picture of whoever he worships i'm assuming it's not god steve Um, bannon or something yeah maybe i mean i mean like like matt said he knew exactly what he was doing i mean the whole thing would be quite funny sort of performative satire if he hadn't made such a monumental mess during his tenure it's it's the are we allowed to swear on this i don't think we are are we please don't well, matt gets annoyed if you do as we saw last <laughs> okay. week when i managed to get i think six I'm swears into one sentence. version of this swear walked in messed stuff up walked out <laughs> everybody knows what that means but like it was it was a, a classic example of that and like matt says he knew exactly what he was doing but what annoys me about Dominic Cummings is that people that are sort of like almost you know desperate for headlines or who very much worship being the center of attention people that are open about that I I, I I don't agree with it necessarily it's not something I would do but I respect that you're open you want the publicity he's the worst kind of hypocrite he pretends like he's this sort of like alternative anti-establishment guy that's like I'm not going to button up my shirt and I'm not going to comply with whatever but actually everything he's tried to achieve politically he's had to be firmly entrenched in the establishment to try and achieve that's the first thing and secondly if you if he wasn't bothered about being the at the epicenter of the next day's headlines he wouldn't have left in that way so he posits positive positives i can't even say that word he positions himself let's say that as this anti-establishment like real like alternative i live outside the periphery kind of guy but actually he's just desperate for attention Mm -hmm. I think that's definitely true. He's, he he does he does love the attention. There's a brilliant set of old pictures of him. I don't know if you've seen them, black and white pictures of him from way back when he was doing his. When he's um, smoking. Yeah, that's right. And he's got a banner that says "Love Europe, Hate the Euro" or something. Oh, he, he was when Euro. he was he yeah. was when he was campaigning against the Euro. And he's a, he's a much younger man, but he's looking like it looks like a sort of a band's first NME shoot with with our good friend Kevin Cummings behind the camera. Um, and, and, you know, he absolutely loves it. I mean, he, he will have loved those cameras outside his house, you know, when he's coming out with the kid's bike and the ball. Honest to God, he, lo- he loves it. He it's, just all, it's all self-mythologising, isn't it? I mean, it, it, yeah. it's interesting that, you know, he, in this, um, this myth he's created around himself, he was the man who stopped Britain adopting the euro. Mm. No, that that was Gordon Brown. That was Gordon Brown. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, he's, he's managed, and, and people buy it. You know, there are intelligent, and I know we talk probably too much about journalists on on here, but there are in, intelligent, well, otherwise intelligent journalists who who normally see through all this, but for some reason with, with Cummings, they bought into the whole thing. You know, they they were excited about being around them. They, they felt like it was, you know, they were being allowed into the into the cool boys club. Um and the whole thing, you know, was always going to collapse like a like a house of cards, you know. Is there it's such a thing as a cool boys club? Because I'd really like to be a member. You would not be a not member. Not if it's not if Dom Cummings is running it. I don't think it's <laughs> the same definition. I mean, it's so, you're right though, Matt, there's this kind of like air of like, he creates this like air of enigma around himself or not even enigma, maybe, well, a bit of enigma, but or sort of, but more this air of, you'd be lucky to associate with me. You'd be lucky to even 
be within earshot of all my wisdom and I'm just all I'm thinking the entire time is like button up your shirt like, yeah don't want but, this. but that's all part of it isn't it the hey I'm too busy thinking deep thoughts to be able to dress like a grown adult you know um, he's, so, well, he's the guy I tried to be at sixth form smoking galwa and reading <laughs> uh you know Rambo and stuff yeah but you grew out of it and he's like 40 odd oh well, you say that <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna assume you've grown out of it Richard um it's he really does annoy me because he is the worst kind of hypocrite because he pretends to really resist and hate the precise things that he has been desperate for his entire career and yeah. it's almost like every time i mean he's worked for ian duncan smith he's he didn't david cameron i think yeah um essentially refuse to have him involved but he, he wanted him, to be yeah. involved he or he sacked him pardon me and obviously now he's left it's like each time he's been desperate to be in the inner sanctum but also to control it. And then when that hasn't happened, it's just sort of blown up with the rest of the populace left to pick up the consequences. While yeah. he dashes back to, to Durham or Barnard Castle or wherever he lives and just has a nice old time. And it's, he really is pretty awful. I can't even be impartial about it. He's pretty awful. Well, and the, the worst thing is what he does next. And the you know classic example is um, Nick Timothy, who every Monday writes a, a column in the Telegraph where he, he sets out what he thinks the Conservatives need to be doing. Whereas he had a go in government at running the, the, the system, um, was integral in the 2017 general election campaign, which was an utter disaster, was forced to quit. And you can see Dummings being, that's Cummings. Dummings. There you go, wow. you've got it. <laughs> wow, that's that's come from deep in the psyche. Cominic um, Dummings. Um, <laughs> Cummings will now do the same thing. He'll go back to his his, his blog, setting out where the, where the government's going right and how they just listened to to him and his dark genius and his NASA command in Whitehall. It, it could have been a completely different thing. But, you know, he had a go and and it all went um, very, very badly as it, it was inevitable it was going to do. What I guess we couldn't have, have foreseen of all the disastrous um, restructures and, and policies that he followed during his time effectively running the government. The one thing that did for him was uh, the Prime Minister finding out that he called his girlfriend Princess Nut Nuts. <laughs> that's, not even, that's not even a clever nickname. Like, that's not even a clever insult. I feel like if you're going to fall on that sword, at least make it like clever and original. <laughs> Princess Nut Nuts. Well, I, 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 actually, it's been clarified now. It's Princess Nut Nut rather than Nut Nuts. I don't know why that's Moving important. Moving the plural really takes the edge off. It has been, insult, it has been clarified. I mean, <laughs> here we are talking about him, which is exactly what he wants. I think... The new European, he's on the front, it's a great front page this week, he's on the front with the carnage behind him. And I think that's really the issue, you know, what, how much tidying up needs to be done. Um, I did speak to someone uh, earlier this week in number 10, just briefly, who, who said, well, you know, it, it, we're going to be running things a little bit differently from now on. You know, we're not going to be doing different briefings here and there. We're going to be, it's going to be, you know, we're going to be on track and online. And I, I managed to get a little... Um, heads up about what might happen at Christmas. And I was told it would be it would be three households, three days, and then back to lockdown. Only to read in the mail that it would be five days and four households, and to read somewhere else that it was going to be six days. And so clearly number 10 still got some work to do on getting that message straight. Um so work in progress, I it's think. It's gonna guys. be households. I think we can establish that much. It will involve houses. <laughs> in, but well, the number is yet to be determined. In terms of the different way that they're going to do things, it's telling there was a story, I think it was in Wednesday's Times, and they'd been briefed that Johnson's new chief of staff, whoever he or she will be, and uh, Allegra Stratton, his, his new press secretary, 
were planning to talk regularly in future to Tory MPs. And it's like, wow, it's like you just talked about Nixon. It's like Nixon going to China. You know, the people around the prime minister are actually going to going to talk to the members of parliament. But it's a sign of, you know, the utter contempt that um, that the MPs have been held by the, mm. the, the staffing operation in, in Downing Street over, over I the past year. the democracy year. has essentially become such like a foreign concept. It's like, oh, we're going to try this thing called dialogue, democracy <laughs> and mutual participation. Ooh, fancy like matt said it's like it just demonstrates how much contempt um well, good luck with that number 10 mm. good luck you're gonna need it um just briefly because this is of course a podcast born out of brexit um it seems that things perhaps i don't know i don't want to speak too soon but the mood music is changing a little bit around brexit and we may be close to a deal if we got our fingers crossed or are we just you know is it just let's just wait and see um, cash I mean- oh matt you go no sorry you, you go first cash no i mean i i to be fair i is it i know that this podcast is born out of brexit and so i do care but i feel like i care less with each time i hear something um so to be honest i mean it's hard to know and to take it seriously when you sort of hear that you're close to a deal because just a few days ago i read that various elements of sort of trade or sorry various elements of a deal were still to be resolved such as policing for for, mm. for one example um crime and there was one other was it it wasn't travel it was some form of trade but basically what i'm trying to say is that there seems to be like quite a few conflicting narratives that we may be close to a deal but then also there's a huge number of other things that are unresolved so it tempers my excitement really but also notwithstanding that even if we do get a deal i think it'd be bad to get caught up in just the success of securing a deal because it's only a successful thing if the actual substance of said deal is is good and is productive and doesn't essentially ruin us all forever, and, it, and I think it, what I think to underline that that any deal is is very unlikely um, for many many years to be as good as the deal we had in the first place. Yeah, well, I mean that 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 harks sort of back to the original question of like why on earth did you ever call this referendum in the first place? But mm. I mean, I guess that that question has been debated to death. But as you say, Richard, the quality of deal however late in the day it's secured and it looks like it will be late in the day if it is secured it will never be comparable to what we had before and what we sort of frivolously in a sense threw away mm. matt yeah um, i agree with uh, all of that I, I i suspect now there will be a, a a deal i'm leaning that way i've been some time uh expecting that they would go for no deal i think the changes in downing street make it more likely there will be some kind of, of deal. You hear that uh, there's only Boris Johnson left who's quite comfortable with, you know, what he uh, euphemistically terms an Australia-type uh, arrangement, which means no deal because Australia doesn't have any form of deal uh, with the with the EU. Uh, but you get the impression that even people as gung-ho as, as um, Michael Gove, now that they've really seriously looked under the bonnet of what no deal would mean, uh, have been left kind of quite white haired by the by the prospect. So I, I think something will be signed off, but it'll be very, very bare bones. And if yeah, people, I think, uh, sorry, if people think that that, that will be it, um, it, it will not be. That the next five to 10 years will still um, be dominated, not just by rebuilding the economy, um, but by going back to the EU and trying to build on that on that deal, because it, it will be the absolute minimum that is needed to get 
studs in and out of the country. Yeah. I think um, I, I think really now the discussion needs to be how can we sign the most minimal deal possible and sell it to the public as um, as a Brexit deal for 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 the Prime Minister, because the there is simply not enough time to sort out absolutely every T being crossed and every I being dotted between now and, and New Year's Eve. So, um, I, you know, the sensible thing right at the start of this year would have been to go, do you know what, I think we all need to come together to deal with this little problem over here um, that, that's, that's arrived from China. And, and let's, do, let's, let's do this transition period of two years rather than, rather than one. But unfortunately, there weren't enough adults in the room to sort that out at the time. But I do think now there will be some kind of deal and they will go, you know, we will continue in a reduced transitional period for the next six months, 12 months, whatever, until we can absolutely get it, get it sorted. And that does sound like about as sensible as we can hope for from, from this government. And do you know what? The EU are, are not blameless with regards to this negotiation either. Um, they've had their moments of petulance, et cetera. And, uh, you know, just because we were fans of staying in Europe doesn't mean we're necessarily um, absolutely um, behind how Brussels conducts its politics all the time. Um, okay, well... Just just before you move on, it's Oof. worth mentioning... That, sorry, um, I, I know we were only going to touch on Brexit. It, it's, it's worth mentioning I'm that... just trying um, to have a moment of zen, man. I'm just, having a, mo- just a moment of zen. Um, the, the EU's got got other problems um, on its on its eastern flank. Um I think that Brexit's going to fade into the background over mm. the, the next few months over the problems that Hungary and Poland are going to cause over the, the, the budget. Um, mm. And that's going to be the thing focusing um, EU leaders' minds much more than than whatever shenanigans the UK's getting up to. What a Brexit brouhaha. I'm sorry, just what, uh, sort of one final point, Richard, and then I'll let you get back to your zen, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> in terms of, like, like Matt says, the US, or the US, the EU, I should say, um, are preoccupied with things in terms of Poland and Hungary and that's very true and that may be a, an obstacle or a preoccupation for them but then equally I think what has kind of accelerated the UK mindset is the fact that with the Joe Biden victory obviously there's no trade deal with the US as of yet and there won't be at all mm. if the Good Friday Agreement isn't respected so I think that maybe is in the back of certain people's minds when it comes to trying to secure something with the EU um, moving forward because although we're running out of you know, I guess options are, it's almost like we're running out of backup generators. I don't think one singular trade deal with Japan, however happy, um, Liz Truss. however, Liz Truss, and I have totally forgotten the MP, what is his name? Likes boxing, always think he has a thick neck. Uh, oh. What's his name? He's in, he's, oh my God, my mind has gone completely blank, everyone. I'm very, very sorry about this. Boxing, thick neck. Dominic Raab does. There uh, we are, Dominic no, Raab. My mind. He's karate. He, yeah, he, he broke his own hip doing karate. I love that I knew that he was into some <laughs> form of sort of fighting martial arts scenario, but could not remember his name for love nor money. I'm very sorry about that. I just completely, my mind went blank. But I mean, he was very excited about this trade deal, um, as was Liz Truss, but I don't think one singular um, trade deal with Japan really ameliorates the damage um, caused. So. That might be something else for them to consider. You t- talk as- about generators there, Cash. We're going to need one just to do this podcast come January if uh, if we don't get a deal, quite possibly. I, I know a guy. No, I don't. That's a, that's a I don't. I don't know a guy. Right then, let me get back to a little bit of Zen, and we will we will return very shortly. 
From true crime to football, Brexit to folklore. For more great podcasts from Archant, head to audioboom.com slash channel slash Archant. Welcome back. I've had my little little rest, my little moment of peace and calm, but I think things might be about to get a bit more heated because we, we're, we're trialling a bit for Cash because we think she's talented and now she's either going to prove us right or wrong. Um, I want to call this the cash drop. I don't know if that is a thing. Is it like a money drop? Is that a thing? I don't know. But anyway, basically, Cash is going to pick one particular pillock or a group of pili, pillocks, pillocks, I'm not sure. And, um, I don't think. And, and get really angry. So, Cash, the microphone is yours. I'm ready. I took a massive in- gulp of air from an imaginary oxygen mask for this moment. <laughs> um, okay, so for my first sort of attempt at this, I wanted, as I alluded to before, wanted to go for a group of people. And the reason that I say that is that I want to basically make cronyism my knobhead of the week. Now, yeah. I appreciate that cronyism is a concept rather than an individual. However, it implicates a lot of individuals. And so I basically want to rant about the fact that despite being in the midst of a pandemic, where you would think that a degree of morality would prevail or a degree of desire to do the right thing for the populace would prevail. We have a government that has essentially, increasingly, as time has gone on, been revealed to have given more and more contracts to people they know, people who know their wives or husbands, people they used to go to school with, people who have no expertise in the area in which they have been given the contract for, or people that, I don't know, babysat or their dogs, mothers, cat. Basically, if you have a connection whatsoever to certain figures within the Tory party, you are likely to have benefited hugely from this pandemic, which is not ostensibly what should be the objective of a pandemic. The objective should be to save lives. It shouldn't be to basically line the pockets of your nearest and dearest. And I want to use four examples of contracts that really stuck out to me notwithstanding the fact that obviously Julian Mullion and the Good Law Project are actually commencing a judicial review against quite a few different contracts at the moment. And the Good Law Project will be worth listeners checking out if they're interested in the people trying to fight against this. Anyway, I digress. So the four contracts that I want to get really angry about, and I take another gulp of air from my imaginary auction mask. The first one, Kate Bingham. So she is the chair of the Vaccine Task Force she was given 670,000 to hire PR consultants. She's also, or was, the manager of a private equity firm. She's married to a Tory MP, Jesse Norman. He went to Eton with Boris Johnson and she went to private school with Boris Johnson's sister, Rachel. So that's contract one, totally valid, full of merit, not at all a massive waste of money. Number two, Randox Laboratories. This company is an Irish company, so I felt a slight betrayal in exposing them, but my sort of morality trumped that, so I decided to do it anyway. So they're a Northern Ireland-based healthcare company. They employ Owen Patterson, a Tory MP in Shropshire, I believe. He is paid £8,333 per month for 16 hours work. Nice work if you can get it. So he is a consultant for that company. They were given £133 pounds worth of a contract to produce testing kits um, by Matt Hancock. This contract and a subsequent extension for six months worth an additional 347 million. Both of those were granted during the operational period of the strict COVID regulation. So basically this was the point where contracts are 
sort of contracts of this nature could be given out without a public tendering process. So basically they won this contract unopposed because of their connections to you know, the, the, the government essentially. Um, and it's cost over 500 million and I can't do the math that quickly, but it's a lot of money and it, they basically secured it unopposed. Third contract, Public First. They're a po policy consultancy company. They were given a contract. I believe they billed over half a million for this contract under the same emergency provisions, so no tendering. And basically the contract was to research public opinion on the government's COVID-19 communications. Now, I could do that for you for nothing. They don't think it's been very good. However, the company, Public First, owned by husband and wife combination, James Freyan and Rachel Wolfe. James Freyan, one of her best friends, best friends, Dominic Cummings, real good pals, you know, sort of used to smoke together in black and white photo shoots back in the day and <laughs> his wife Rachel Wolf co-owns the company she is a former advisor to Michael Gove and actually co-wrote the Conservative Party's manifesto for last year's election so really detached from the government there we can see and a complete objective tendering process that didn't take place final contract further gulp of air Hanbury Strategy another company a policy lobbying consultancy I don't really know what that means I'm not really sure anyway Secured a contract, secured a combined, pardon me, under two contracts, £648,000 to do policy and research. Again, pardon me, to do polling and research. Again, I could do things like that for you for a lot less because overall it's pretty shit and I could, I could glean that public opinion. Their co-founder, this company's co-founder, Hanbury Strategy, is a Paul Stevenson, who was the director of communications for the Vote Leave campaign, who worked along with the aforementioned and now departed Dominic Cummings. So those are four examples and there are countless others, but my hand got sore when I was trying to like make notes on these. So basically those are four examples of contracts that may well have had merit. I don't know. I would argue probably not, but they were A, awarded for the most part without a tendering process because the strict COVID regulations at the time that were in operation allowed for that to happen. So there's no opposition and no real scrutiny. Secondly, they were awarded to companies who have undeniable tangible connections to the government now i'm not unrealistic i think it's impossible for every contract to be awarded without any kind of connection to the institution or the people within that institution awarding the contract however the prevalence of it it's omnipresent it's it'd be harder i think to find a contract where there's no government nepotism or implication of that nature but yet here we are months later countless billions spent real questions over it, the efficacy of that spending and with each passing day emerges more and more that essentially cronyism has been a bigger player in this than it should be in anything and so to sort of round off my rant it's not a knobhead of the week it's a it's a sort of a societal wrong of the week and for me it's cronyism and the examples that I've outlined just highlight how insidious it is and how terrible it is that such measures have been employed when society and the world has been facing one of its darkest eras. Well, that's thank you very much, Cash. I think a lot of people would agree with you. Of course, we can't actually um, we can't actually let that go into the pod because you've met, named checked quite a lot of my friends there, and I do have shares in Hanbury, so um, oh, I'm, I'm afraid that won't be won't be going out to the general public. But there you go. There's Cash's first rant. No better the week. Okay, I'm not sure the editor is going to be too keen on that one. Um, but come up with some suggestions about 
how what we can name this. We want to give it a jingle, and we want to give every week Cash a platform to rant and rail against terrible misdeeds or simple stupidity. It's a very quite serious one this week, Cash. Actually, good good way to start. Thank you very much, um, Matt. You endorse that I, message? I, I absolutely. I thought it was like uh, listening to an Irish John Oliver. <laughs> yes. I, I feel. I oh, I, I oh, I feel bad. I feel like I. I had I known that aforementioned, I I wouldn't have gone into as much detail. <laughs> I was only joking. <laughs> oh, you're being serious. Oh my God, you had me actually rolling. I was like, I don't know. I don't know anyone. Oh my my share portfolio, as we talked about off air, is very small and doesn't include Hanbury. Um. <laughs> oh my god, you that you really had this is, the, this is oh my god, you had me going there. I was thinking, I was thinking that was a good rant, but yes, I've managed to offend everyone. You've managed to, but yeah, because we we're all cronies here at the New European. That is not true. Um, what anyone, whatever anyone might tell you about our mysterious dark money that we get, there isn't any mysterious dark money. Um, there is no conspiracy here. If you would like to, no, not if you would like to, you simply must go and buy the new European printed edition. It's on sale now. It's £3. Lots of Brexit, you might imagine. Lots of politics, lots of news, but also lots of arts and culture, as we saw. And you can read all about Richard Luck's 20 best political movies and uh, argue with your pals about which ones have been left off and which ones shouldn't have been in there. Um, Another great James Ball column as well this week. I know uh, our listeners like James. Um, we should he's definitely get James story. on the pod again very soon, shouldn't we? Um, there was a lot of... Ag- us three agree a lot. It wasn't like this when Steve was on the pod. <laughs> We're always agreeing all the time. We I'm still to- in my sort of like early days, so I only become truly combative like about a month down the line. <laughs> okay, well, we're looking forward to that. That'll <laughs> coincide with the lockdown Christmas we're all looking forward to. Um, if you would like to, please do follow me on Twitter. It's at Porritt, P-O-R-R-I-T-T, or you can follow Matt Withers. Yeah, um, at Matt Withers, M-H-E-T-W-I-T-H-E-R-S. Um, oh. Just nice stuff, please. I've, I had an abusive tweet this morning from somebody who picked up me. on so, something I tweeted about League Two football four years ago. Somebody oh, just, just got round to, uh, to, to voicing his displeasure on. Such heavily researched trolling. That requires so much effort to find. Cash, if people want to, uh, want to slag you off on Twitter, what do they do? Uh, please don't do that. No, I'm kidding. Um, uh, my handle is at cash boil. So cash like money, boil like boil. I don't know. Um, and to repeat the previous message, money welcome. It's B-O-Y-L-E. So not like a boil on your bum. No, it's not. But I have had that name cruelly thrown at me <laughs> in my primary school days. <laughs> of course. And now you've returned to primary school on the new European podcast. I'm excited. It's t- it's, my life has come full circle. It's only a matter of time before Matt's giving you a wedgie and I'm putting your head down the <laughs> toilet and flushing it. Um, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for tuning in. Um, thank you to Cash, obviously, and to Matt Withers, who not only um, provides his knowledge and voice, but does all the background stuff that is so important to make sure that this podcast gets into your ears. And thank you, of course, to our excellent guest Richard Luck Um, we'll be back next week until then Mr Campbell play your bagpipes here you go
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.